Just draw a point at the intersection of your horizontal line and the curve. Yeah, that, that is one yeah. point and that's the other. Yeah. And the difference is the spread. That's the spread. Okay. Now, you see the spread can get narrow, narrower, but there's a minimum and it's still positive. Okay, for the various quantities. And, and the other, the traditional supply-demand equilibrium theory of price has two intersecting curves and the point of intersection produces the price. But this is all wrong in spite of the fact that all virtually all universities teach that, even today, without mentioning the alternative. Amazing, amazing. And it's completely misleading, all right? Thank you very much. Okay, so I offer these thoughts to you to uh, accompany my criticism of the post-Mises Austrians for embracing the equilibrium theory of price and the concept of evenly rotating economy and adopt the Manger, Mangerian version which is the disequilibrium theory of price and the non-evenly rotating economy because all these changes, arbitrage actions and so on cause the economy to change its substance and character in every way. So the second time the cycle comes back, it will be a different economy. It will be the same game, the same process, but with brand new parameters. Okay, I think I mentioned uh, the second point of criticism, which is also uh, pointing an, out an error of commission. And this, I already mentioned, the quantity theory of money, which ha has been around for thousands of years, but let's say it was crystallized during the Renaissance. The ancient history is perhaps not so important, but what happened since the Renaissance to our days is very important. It's accepted as the universal Bible. It is the basic foundation of the theory of money, quantity theory of price. And according to Menger, this is all wrong. Menger did not believe in the quantity. <laughs> and they carefully concealed it. Post-Mises Austrians carefully conceal this fact. I mean, you can read and read and read the works of Mises, Hayek, and the rest of them. They nowhere mention that Manger didn't believe in it. <laughs> Which actually pulls the rug from underneath of their theory, because they pay lip service to Manger. But that's no more than lip service. Because in very basic things, such as the quantitative theory, they don't 
there mentioning the outstanding fact that Menger explicitly rejected. Explicit, I think I give references where you can uh, quote Menger chapter and verse. Yeah, it, at the end, so there's a, a, a relatively new book published in 2002 by uh, Michael Latzer and Stefan Schmitz. They are editors. They didn't write the whole book. There are uh, articles from a wider circle. The title of the book is very characteristic. Karl Menger and the Evolution of Payments Systems from Barter to Electronic Money. Where was electronic money before 1921 when Menger died? I'm not aware that there was. So how can you attach this idea to the name of Menger? It beats me. But anyhow, in this selection of articles, they quote uh, a longish work of Menger, which is entitled Geld, the word money in German, Geld. It's not das, das Geld or der, what? Das. Das. It's not das Geld, just Geld, which is unusual in German. Usually you put the, uh, the article in front. But anyhow, Geld. This was written for an encyclopedia on economics, and it was first written in, 19, in 1892. And it went through three editions, three thorough revisions by Menger himself. And the last one, the third version of Geld, was written in 1909, so already in the 20th century, 1909. And this did not exist in English translation. It was written in German and never translated until this book was published in 2002. So there you have an English translation of the original article Geld in English. And uh, I mentioned chapter and verse where you uh, have Menger quoted on the quantity theory of money. And in fact, I think this is Okay, uh, well, you have to read it, obviously. I don't find but, uh, the exact words of Menger and how it uh, means that he actually dismisses. It's not that he puts a question mark and says, oh, maybe, maybe not. No, it's not that. He outright rejects the quantity theory because he introduces a revolutionary new idea which has hardly any precedent before Menger's appearance. And the idea is 
marketability, the original German word. If you know just one German word, it has to be that. Absatzfähigkeit. Do I pronounce it correctly? Absatzfähigkeit. You must know this German word. If you don't know another word of German, please do remember this one. Would you say that marketability is a, is a good translation or there are differences in shades between the German and the English word? So, so it's, it's fa fair to say marketability uh, renders Menger's original idea fairly in the English language. So let's work on that. Marketability has to be defined, obviously. Now, you have to help me. Marketability. Because you, you, have, you don't erase that, that uh, because that chart can be used to explain marketability, okay? Marketability is defined in terms of the one word which I have used several times already, spread. spread. So marketability is defined in terms of the spread. Take two goods. Good A and good B. Now, more and more and more of good A and good B reaches the market. The supply is increasing. Okay? Now, the two goods will respond differently to this increase in supply. Namely, one good will have a spread which is increasing faster, and the other good will have a spread which is increasing more slowly. Now why does the spread have to increase if the supply is increasing? Could you give a very simple, I'm not asking for formulas or any highbrow names, words, and so on. Just a simple basic idea. Why does the spread for all goods, without exception, has to, why does it have to increase with the increase of supply? Because the utility diminishes. Because the, the, the producer? Is, because of the diminishing of the utility. Because? The utility diminishes. Uh huh. In greater quantities, the, if you have more of anything, there is more and less, less and less use. More and more demand is satisfied, yes. so the demand is diminishing, and therefore, the, if the producer wants to sell more, more, yes, the producer can sell more, 
the utility for him is less. You'll have to lower the price. But yes. You'll have to lower the price if he wants to sell more and demand is reducing. Product cycles. Some cycles have a longer product cycle than others. Product cycle. Hmm? Product cycle. Yeah, that's getting too complicated, the basic, yes? I would say, you know, if, if you have supply increasing and I have an interest to buy, and I see supply increasing, I just simply drop my price. So, so know, if, 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 you, if you see supply increasing, you just drop your bid, basically, is, is what... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I would guess that the supplier would have a vested interest in making the profit that he wanted to make initially and keeping his ask price steady. Yes, I think that's very good. This is acting on the bid price. What about acting on the ask price, the increasing supply? What effect does it have on acting? To, to hmm? lower it. Hmm? To lower it. Yeah. yeah. Could you just elaborate? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you did it, Juan. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Juan, Juan said it. But um, um, if you see more supply coming to the market, not only will the bid be taken away, but the offer will be reduced as well at the same time because anyone that's offering offering this product will is offering it against exchange for something else and that exchange is not going to happen at that rate that he wants so that comes down you can assume money at this stage yeah yeah we, you, yeah, we are not really talking about barter here uh, but are you satisfied that the spread is getting wider is everybody satisfied? All right, so we pass that hurdle. But now there are two different goods, A and B, and we agreed both will have an increasing spread, assuming that the supply is increasing. But the key point is that the spread for one of the goods, A, is increasing more slowly than the spread is increasing for the good B. Which of the two goods A and B is more marketable? A or B? A with a spread increasing more slowly or B where the Spread is increasing faster. A. A, that's correct. So as long as the spread is increasing more slowly, the good will be more marketable than the other one. Now, there are only so many goods available. So one of them will have a spread increasing more slowly than the spread of anything else. I mean, the pure logic suggests that there has to be something. It's not historical experience I'm appealing to, or Manger is talking about. It is logic that given only finitely many goods, one of them will have the property that the spread is increasing more slowly than the spread of anything else when the market is bombarded by new supplies. More, more, more. What is that good which 
let's call it the most marketable good. What is it? Money. Money. Gold. 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 <laughs> and there's also a runner-up, a runner-up, second, is silver. That's it. And that's it. The next guy, somewhere down there, is way, way behind. There's no chance to compete with the marketability. No chance whatsoever. You could talk about platinum all you want, or palladium all you want, or diamonds, or what have you. They all have their marketability, their spread. But no chance of ever coming to. And one good reason for that is because gold and silver have huge stores as compared with the flows of new production. It could be that gold has a store, already existing gold, which is equivalent of 80 years production, the flows. So it's a huge, whereas for another uh, another metal, very common and also has a monetary history, copper. The existing stores are a fraction months, months rather than years. You see, so copper and and the same is true for platinum. Very few people appreciate that, but that's true. You can check it. And because of that, these other metals have no chance competing with gold and silver. And that is the reason. That is, well, thank you very much. I keep you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there it is. I think with this thought, I finish my uh, first presentation, there will be a discussion right now. Right now, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a question period on the back of this lecture for 15, 15 minutes 15. or so. So we've got, a, we've got a one hour question period at the end, sort of the main So one. there will be a second chance coming back. But right now, you have the first chance, so please. Um, when this spread is dropping, uh, when the bid and ask are dropping, why can't they drop at the same rate and maintain the same spread? When the, when the bid and the offer are falling, why can't they maintain the same difference between the two? Or why well, they could. They could. It's not necessary. But it won't widen, right? Mm. That's the point. Mm. I mean, they could stay the same. And in fact, that's what is happening in the case of gold. Because one could say that for gold, the spread is going to be constant. You, you, put, you throw more and more gold on the market. It has an effect on the spread. But eventually the spread will become constant, or, or fairly constant. The, it could be that the decline in the spread is so small that for practical purposes it's negligible.
Okay, if, if that is your question, if it pertains to any other material, um, marketable good, then there are two dynamics at work. One determines the ask price, and one determines the bid price. Have you got an idea? And obviously, <laughs> the process of uh, convergence will determine the spread. <coughs> the ask price is not determined by the manufacturer. He can set a price, if you like. You know, I want my car to be sold for 20,000. He can set as much as he likes, but ultimately, ask prices are determined by the competition of those who bid for that car. It may be a very marketable car on which there is a lot of bidding, and they will bid the prices up or the other way around. So ultimately, the ask prices are, are the outcome by the competition of the consumers. So isn't it uh, the competition from the producers? I mean, if you have more people making cars... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> no. no. But the competition of the producers does come in when it... Yes. However, I mean, I follow you. I, I feel for you. I thought the same. Don't worry. Years ago. <laughs> I'll, I'll admit. I'll admit. Um, I've been to classical economics classes. It, take, it took me 18 months to get that out of my head. It's a long time to, to forget all about it. But bear with me. This is the outcome. The house price is the, is the outcome of the competition of the consumer. And conversely, the bid price is, the, is the, determined by the competition of the producers. It sounds counterintuitive, but it is, believe me. I mean, think about it this way. If you have um, a series of cars on offer, let's say the cheapest one is at 10,000. If that's taken by the consumer, you've got one left at 12,000 above it on offer, let's say. So, it's the consumer that's determining the offered price of the next car because they're the ones that are doing the buying, basically. So it might be sort of a case of the car dealer wants to sell the car at 25,000, but there are successively other people beneath him, you know, so he's not going to get cleared. What determines whether he gets cleared is the person buying, basically. So he's the one that actually determines what the next person can buy at. Have you ever seen a screen of a trader in front of you, a, a Wall Street trader? Have you ever seen a screen like that? It, it goes something, well, Sandy, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm very crude, but I mean, this bids and offers, and, and here's where they come together. You have to, I mean, if, if you really want that particular commodity, just imagine it's, it's a BMW, Mercedes, very marketable. How many of you are there willing to pay even more than 20? That would determine 
those who get, those offers that get cleared. You see, this this is jumping up all the time and jumping down, and, and, and the, the clearing is is, is the numbers in. 20, 21, 22, 23, and, 20, okay. and, and then going down, and then you can pick them off. 19 and a half. There you go. 20 and a half. You, you can put in bits, and others are putting in offers. Whether it is a car, or whether it is copper futures, or whether it is anything. This, this is your computer screen. It doesn't need to be a computer screen, it can be a handshake. Why should I sell my car for 20,000 if there is another person offering me 20 and a half? Conversely, why I, can't, I may want 20, but there is not a single bid for 20. They all at 17 and a half, you see. Prices for goods are determined by the competition the level of competition by the consumer, not by what I would like to get. So, so just, one just thing I'd like to add is that once the 20k car is sold, the next one is 20.5. So these are picked off yes. by the buyers, and that's how those other prices go higher and higher. Yes. And the opposite way as well. So, would it be fair to think that, say, coming back to the point of the competition on the side of the producer? That's really just there to drop the bid price, isn't it? Because as a you know, as a producer, you're competing to make a bigger profit, meaning you want to drop your costs or perhaps attract more market share. And I'm guessing once the buyers realize that actually, you know, we can squeeze the price, they just drop the bid further. It, would, would that be a right way of thinking? Of it? That actually, the competition on the producer side also impacts the pricing mechanism. Yes, the, pro the producers are also competing on many different levels because this is where the demand supply equilibrium that I've drawn here before, remember the cross, is so inadequate. Producers can do arbitrage in their inputs. Uh, with their contractors, with I mean, choose another tire supplier, choose another whatever, and and reduce costs maybe so they can keep their profits, or maybe drop the prices and you know hang on to their um, facilities uh, if they don't want to go bankrupt. Um, this is that process is not reflected in the simple demand supply. The, the, the process whereby producers have uh, or arrive at a certain point where they say, well, okay, um, at this point I'm withdrawing my bid because it's not worth my while. They, they have a second option. Either they produce or they don't. And they wait for better times. They withdraw their offer, not their bid, their offering. They don't offer a lower price. So yes. That's, that's the upper part. They, they can withdraw from the market. They can come back later. They can withdraw permanently. Um, they also have a choice of, of making their plant more productive. I mean, this is all in, in, a, in a complex model. You, you would find it here. But this, is, this is also assuming that the inventory of the producer or the consumer is finite, right? Because 
if, for example, I have this pen that's worth, let's say, 10 pounds, and I'm a market maker, let's just make it assumption, I'm a market maker, the price of that would be 8 bid, 12 offer, 8 bid, 12 ask. So if someone pays this 12, which is your argument, the consumer yes. pays 12 for it, so I've made, you know, this is worth 10, I know it's worth 10 because I've reduced it, yes. and I say 8 bid, 12 ask. Yes. Someone pays 12, I'm, I'm, I have sold one, my next price will be 10 bid, 14 ask. Because I need to cover my what I've sold. Yes. So this is, but is, there, is, there the is there a bid for 14? But if there's a bid for 14, we'll keep going higher and higher. So yes. I, I, yeah. yes, this will just will jump up. Yeah. Of course. It's yeah. worth highlighting, not necessarily, I mean, we're just talking about a static shop here. You know, people can come into the, to the spread, you know, people can exit the spread, you know, I mean, if everything stayed as it was, then it would be like that, mm -hmm. you know, but the list of offers and the list of bids constantly changes, yes. you know, I mean, it can even millions. vanish, you know, so one side can, you know, so... There's, there's, there's millions. Before you can raise your price, there's millions of offers for 10 to clear first. But at any one snapshot of what you're looking at, obviously, you know, it will look like that, right. you know. And, and in case of the most marketable good, gold and silver, I come to you, I mean, the supply is... Yeah, so the inventory cycle is in. And every time it gets cleared, the price will go. I mean, you cannot define price of gold in terms of, yeah, you know, it's another exchange group. <coughs> price of gold is not determined in dollars. But we'll come to that. Uh, yes, I, yes, sir. I was just going to add, isn't the price essentially defined by the marginal bidder and the marginal producer? Yes. Like to break that to be specific? It is, I mean, it, it's obviously the marginal one, because there will be one here. These two are the marginal ones. Once their bid ask is closed, they fall out. Next one. This thing drops, or so that goes up, and then it's the next marginal one. Those are roles of people. Not, not people, but roles of people. Yes, obviously. Menger, again. Mm -hmm. And not Keynes. Right. Any, any more questions? Um, we, we may come across as, you know, high level, but it is, it is not, I mean, it's simple. Okay. You, you can ask questions. It's not that bad. Right? Right. <laughs> if well, you've got a sore throat and you need some drink, your coffee. We've got five minutes and then 